0: very warm welcome to those of you who have joined us, and I'm sure that there will be more people joining us tomorrow for the Missionary Day. We have a very, very full program. Um, We just need the wisdom of the Lord to enable us to get it all together in a way that's going to honor Him and further His purposes in the earth. Now, those of you who have been with us for the past few days will have become aware and very conscious of the wonderful centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our thinking, in our praying, and I trust in our preaching. Bless God. Everything that we are and everything that we do as Christian men and women is centered on our personal relationship to Him. I want to read to you the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Often when we read this letter we become preoccupied with the theme of rejoicing because it's one of the repetitive words. (coughs) It's almost like punctuation, (coughs) written out of a context context of tremendous reality. (coughs) The apostle was proving it, (coughs) not on a bed of roses, but in a Roman dungeon. He was enveloped with unspeakable joy. But it wasn't joy in itself. It was because of his preoccupation. One could almost say obsession with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in the first chapter of the Philippian epistle, he makes mention of the name of Christ 18 times in one chapter and in fact 38 times in the whole of the epistle. He keeps saying Christ, 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 and that's the name that he used more frequently than any other when he was referring to the Lord. Not that he underestimated the value of the name Jesus, and he often referred to him as the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's the name Christ that he uses more than any other. That's because the name Christ was the fulfilment of the truth in the Old Testament. For Messiah in the Old Testament is Christ in the New. And literally translated, it means the Anointed One. One of the three great names given to the Lord at his birth. He was called Emmanuel, God with us. He was called Jesus, God for us. And he was called Christ. Messiah, God in us. Hallelujah. Let's read, shall we? Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops, or if you prefer, elders or overseers. You have to remember that the authorized version was translated by Episcopalians. Amen. So they use the word bishop. Um, you may take exception to it. You, you needn't do. It comes from the Greek word episk, uh, episkopos, which means can be translated bishop, can be translated elder, or it can be translated overseer. Praise God. And the deacons. We don't take exception to that piece. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defence and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent that ye may be sincere and without offence till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defence of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labour. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to abide in the flesh, is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all all for your furtherance and your joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ, for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, or else being absent Sorry, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Amen. Verse 21. For, me, for to me to live, or for, for to me to live, Christ, and to die, gay. Of course, most people don't believe the second half of that <laughs> because they don't believe the first half. <clears throat> How many people believe that death is day, <clears throat> but it's far better? <clears throat> Bless God. <clears throat> for, for to me to live Christ, the Apostle, Christ was his life, it wasn't his religion. <clears throat> wasn't his preaching, wasn't his ministry, it was Christ. Everything that the Apostle Paul knew centred in and upon Christ. Hallelujah. For me to live is Christ. In the Colossian epistle he says, Christ is our life. Again in the Galatian epistle, chapter verse 20 where he says I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me Christ is my life Amen now that's the life that Jesus came to give In the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, he said, I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. That's John chapter 10, verse 10. I am come that they might have life and that they might have life more abundantly. And in order to enable us to have that life, we read repeatedly in the 10th chapter of John that Jesus laid down his life. Verse 11 he says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. <coughs> You'll see it again in verse 15, as the father knoweth me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Jesus came that you and I might have life. That is his life. Further down in that 10th chapter of John's Gospel, he defines it again in verse, verse 28. He said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Jesus has come to give us life. Christ is our life. Amen. Not me trying to live for Jesus. Not me trying to work for Jesus. Not me trying to preach for Jesus. Nowhere in the New Testament does it ask you to do or work for Jesus. Amen. The great truth of the gospel, beloved, is that Christ wants to come and live in you and me and live out his life through us. Jesus died in order to make that possible. (coughs) That was the promise that he made when he said that the Comforter would come. That was the purpose, the ultimate purpose of his death. It wasn't merely to deal with our sin (coughs) Yes, he did deal with our sin. It wasn't merely to take us to heaven when we die. Yes, he does promise that we shall go to heaven when we die. The ultimate purpose for which Jesus died was to release the life of God that was in him and by the Spirit impart that identical life to you and me. Turn into John chapter 14. Verse 16, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. That's the great leap, beloved, from the Old Testament into the New. The Holy Ghost is with you, at that day he shall be in you. In the Old Testament, he was a transient guest. He came and he went, he came and he went. He came upon prophet, priest and king, equipping and enabling them to fulfill that which was the will of God to be worked out through them. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost came as a permanent resident. He came to use the language of John to abide, to stay, to remain as a permanent, indwelling person, revealing and making known and glorifying Jesus in ordinary men and women. That's why the day of Pentecost is essentially the birthday of the church. No one was a Christian until that moment in time. Praise God. That's the great central truth of the day of Pentecost. It wasn't that they spoke in tongues. It wasn't that they got giftful power, uh, power to, uh, gifts to give them power for service. The great central truth of the day of Pentecost was that God came to live in the person of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. by the Holy Ghost on the inside of men and women for the first time in all of history. It's what he had desired in the beginning that had been thwarted by the rebellion and sin of Adam. It wasn't until the day of Pentecost came that that great truth was revealed. He said, he is with you, but at that day he shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you yet a little while and the world seeth me no more, but you see me because I live, you shall live also. Up until that point, no life. Because I live, you shall live also. At that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Amen. That's the great prophetic utterance of Jesus pointing forward to that day that we refer to as the day of Pentecost, when what Jesus prophesied found its fulfillment. It had been foretold by John. Bless God, you could say that John prophesied it, Jesus promised it. Not only did he promise it, but he also prayed for it. In John chapter 17, we find the same lovely truth in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Praise God. That the world may see, that the world may know. And the only way in which the world is going to see and the only way in which the world is going to know, beloved, is when you and I believe the reality of the prophecy and the promise and the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him by the Spirit to live in our bodies to manifest himself through our lives. That's why Paul refers to your body and my body as the temple of God as the temple of the Holy Ghost. or Writing to the Ephesians, we saw it at the end of the second chapter of the Ephesians, the other evening we are called the habitation of God through the Spirit. Paul's understanding of the person of Christ, beloved, was magnificent. You'll read it most gloriously penned in the Colossian epistle. He's described as all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's in First 9 of chapter 2 and in the 19th verse of the first chapter of that same letter he said it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell all that God was was in Jesus Christ and all that Jesus Christ is, was and is by the Holy Ghost seeks to come and live in you and me as ordinary men and women and that and that alone will make us Christians for me to live is Christ That's what Christianity is. It's Christ. That's what salvation is. It's Christ. That's what justification is all about. It's Christ. All those ways that we saw in, as it were on Sunday evening, beloved, uh, related to God's work of salvation in our life. We saw the love of God. We saw the grace of God. We saw the blood of God. We saw the cross of God. We saw the power of God. We saw the faith of God. It's all summed up in Christ. Their facets, their aspects, their doctrines. And doctrines, beloved, are only truths about the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that life, beloved, is Christ's life. Christ's life in you, in me. Amen. (coughs) You ever tried to live the Christian life? If you have, beloved, you've come to the same conclusion as I came to. It is impossible. Utterly impossible. No one can live the Christian life. Only one person has ever lived the Christian life. First of all, he lived it in heaven with the Father and with the Spirit. (laughs) Praise God. That's where the Christian life was originally lived. And then he came and lived it on the earth. (coughs) Exactly the same life that he lived in heaven with his father. Do you believe that he had a different life in heaven to the life he had on the earth? Exactly the same life in heaven on earth. That's why he taught men and women women to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Only one life. The life that Jesus lived in heaven, he lived on the earth. (coughs) That was called Christian living. (coughs) And that same life that Jesus lived in heaven, that he then lived on the earth, by the Spirit, he comes to live in you and me, to reproduce the life of Christ. And that's called Christianity. It's Christ. The thing that amazes me, beloved, was that I was so blind for so long. I have studied theology for four years and never seen it. It's absolutely amazing. (coughs) Praise God. But there's no... None's the blind, beloved, there's those who cannot see. <laughs> Amen. You see, that's the problem with the Jew. Paul says they have a veil over their eyes. They read the, they read the book, but they don't see. Christ is our life. For me to live is Christ. <clears throat> that's the sum total of it all. Blessed be his name. It's all Christ. Now, if you and I are really going to be Christian, beloved, <coughs> by the power of the Holy Ghost, we have the ability to live on the earth the Christ life. Look at this lovely statement. It precedes the one which i quoted. It's in the 20th verse of Philippians chapter 1. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. He was indifferent, beloved, to life or death. He had one great desire, that Christ should be magnified. Now this word magnified, beloved, is translated in a variety of ways in Scripture, but it's either primarily translated as magnified or enlarged. Amen. means to enlarge, to make great. You know, sometimes you have a little negative. <coughs> if you've got one of those little cameras with they very, very small negatives, they're almost, when they, come, when they come back from the developer, brother, they're so small that you, it is almost impossible to see what's on the picture. <coughs> and you cannot ma- imagine, beloved, that you can have, say, all of this section on that little tiny piece of celluloid. <coughs> and then you send it off of the developer and they develop it and first of all they give you a print they ask you if you want a little print or whether you want a big print and then when you get your pictures home and you sort them out those which you like very much you can take back and have enlarged praise God <laughs> hallelujah God by the spirit is wanting to magnify Jesus in you and me he's wanting to make him big. He's wanting to make him great. He's wanting to make him clear. Your life and my life. And it says here, beloved, that Christ shall be magnified in my body. You know, sometimes we spiritualize these things to the degree, beloved, that they become totally unreal. Paul was a tremendous realist. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body. <laughs> Lots of people They say, I will be there with you in spirit, but I can't be there with you in body. That's usually a lame excuse, beloved, for staying at home because you don't want to go to the meeting. <laughs> Essentially and basically, beloved, you go where your body goes. <clears throat> I know that there's an element of truth, beloved, that you can identify in spirit with someone on the other side of the world. We've done that with Eileen Kelly tonight, I trust. Amen. <clears throat> There are no limits in that sphere. But essentially, beloved, you and I are spirit, soul, and body. And our body is the, the container of our soul and our spirit. And essentially what goes on in our body is related to our soul and our spirit. Amen. They're inseparable. We divide them into three parts lots of people talk of humanity as a duality <coughs> body and soul the scripture doesn't beloved it does sometimes but essentially the scripture says you are spirit, soul and body and the important thing about you and me is our spirit what goes on in our spirit gets communicated beloved through the realm of our soul mind, emotions, feelings, willings, desirings and eventually manifests itself and outworks itself in our body I often liken it to a cartwheel. You've got a hub, you've got spokes, and you've got a rim. Knock the hub out, beloved, you haven't got a wheel, you've got a hoop over which essentially you have no control. It just rolls around. The thing that controls a wheel, beloved, is the hub. This illustration is so wonderful in India, beloved, because they still have bullet carts <laughs> And every villager knows what you're talking about when you talk about a cart wheel. <laughs> we don't see many carts these days, but the same principle applies to the wheel on your, your automobile or car, whichever you like to call it. And into the hub beloved, uh, there goes the um, axle to which is linked the drive shaft. And all the power of the engine turns the drive shaft. Now I'm not a mechanic, and some of you people will probably come and put me right afterwards, but that causes the axle to go round, which rotates. The hub, which pushes its energy out through the spokes and causes the wheel to go round. I'm an amateur in these things, but basically that's what happens. Bless God. Now your spirit, beloved, is the hub of your life. Spirit. And whatever controls your spirit, essentially controls and energises and empowers your life. There's only one of two spirits, beloved, that can do that. Either the prince of the power of the air that we considered the other night, or the spirit of God. One of those two things. There is no in-between. What controls the hub of your life then communicates itself out through the spokes, through your mind, through your emotions, through your willings, through your feelings, and manifests itself in your body. Paul's a tremendous realist. He said that Christ shall be magnified in my body. Your body, my body, beloved, is to serve as a magnifying glass, if you like, to make Jesus Christ big in the eyes of other men and women. So that people can see him clearly. So that they can feel him, touch him, handle him and know him, and discover that he's real. Glory to his name. Christ is my life. Christ shall be magnified in my body. Go down into the 27th verse of this chapter. Here's the practical outworking of it. Only let your conversation, that's your manner of living, your lifestyle, (coughs) be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come to see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let your lifestyle be consistent with Christ. Amen. What sort of lifestyle do you have? You know, we lay great stress and great importance, beloved, uh, upon the inward reality and relationship with Christ. And sometimes re- disregard the external. The two things are inseparable. What a man is in his heart, that's what he will be in his life. Jesus said, what a man is, what's in a man's heart will come out of his mouth. What controls your spirit will express itself through your body, and that will become your lifestyle. Many people's lives, beloved, Christian people's lives I'm talking about, aren't governed primarily by that which they claim to believe within, but are governed and manipulated and regulated, beloved, by the influences and powers that come from without That's where the inconsistency lies. That's where the contradiction comes. People who make claims with their lips that aren't consistent with the gospel of Christ. The greatest hindrance to the gospel in many parts of the world to which I go, beloved, isn't Hinduism. It isn't Buddhism. It's no longer communism. It's not even materialism. It's compromised so-called Christian living. People who call themselves Christians and live as bad, if not worse, than the heathen. They are Christians in name, but they are not Christians in nature. I went to a city in North India, where the people in that city said, ask me where I was staying, and I told them where I was located, and they were horrified. And they said, that's the wickedest part of this city, and it was the Christian village attached, attached to the north of the city. And in one church, they'd, already, they'd murdered three people in one year. We were amazed that people weren't wanting to follow their band of religion. Let your conversation, let your lifestyle be consistent with Christ. Listen to this that you may be blameless. This is verse 15 of chapter 2. Harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. In a crooked and a perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither laboured in vain. There's a description, there's a definition of a life that is consistent with the gospel of Christ. It's a life that is blameless. And if you live a blameless life, beloved, one day you will stand before him faultless. That's how he will present you. Glory to his name. Those two words will help you understand the doctrine of Christian perfection, not sinless perfection. You and I have the ability to live a blameless life. And as we consistently, day by day, live a blameless life, there will come a day, beloved, when he will present us faultless before His exceeding great glory blessed be his name and it will be in that day that we will discover beloved what he's really like and to our amazement find that we're like him (laughs) Amen. That's why, again, I want to say, it's not a static experience, but a relationship into which you are brought with Christ that is maintained by the Spirit that enables you to live day by day a blameless life. That is living up to the hilt of that truth and revelation that God has imparted unto you under this present moment in time. That's why we are at all different stages and levels. Amen. You're to be blameless, harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the, cro- in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation. I love that little insertion, brother. In the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation. Not in a Christian meeting, not in a church environment, not in a Christian family. Not amongst friends, beloved, who appreciate you and understand you, but in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation. That's the context in which the apostle discovered the reality of the life of Christ that had come into him by the power of the Holy Ghost that enabled him to live consistently, beloved, day in and day out, even in prison. To rejoice constantly over the fact. People say, well, my situation, my locality, place where I live, we so optimally wanting to run away from where we are, failing to recognize that that is the place where God has probably put us to give us the opportunity to prove the reality of that which is in us. And if we can't, if we don't see the proof of the outworking of it, beloved, in that situation, it never work anywhere else. Amen. It doesn't matter where you are, beloved. It doesn't matter how diabolical your situation is. Know my favorite text in the fourth chapter of the first epistle of John, verse 4 You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Blessed be his name. He's greater than Satan, he's greater than sin, he's greater than self, he's greater than circumstance, he's greater. And the greater one lives within the man or woman of God to enable them to live a life that is consistent with the gospel of Christ anywhere, everywhere. When Jesus came to earth, beloved, there wasn't another person who understood him. There wasn't another person who appreciated him. There, was another per- there wasn't a single person like him. Everywhere, beloved, it was like hell. He shone as a light in the world. Amen, and that's what you and I are to do. He says, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your light under a bushel, but put it upon the candlestick, that it may give light to all that, uh, that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. That's the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, beloved, which is a pen portrait of a normal Christian man or woman. It's not some super state. Not some perfectionist state of Christian living, but it's a description of what a man or a woman is in Christ, because Christ is in them. Hallelujah. Not me trying to be good. Not me trying to love, my friends. Certainly not me trying to love my enemies. That's the sort of thing that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount: Love your enemies. And that's when everyone throws their hands up in despair and say, impossible. Well, that's the whole point of the gospel. That's the point of this lovely truth and revelation of Christ in you. The impossible is made possible. Of course it's impossible. Wasn't impossible, beloved. Jesus would never have come. Jesus has come to make the impossible possible in you and me by dying and releasing the spirit that was in him to come and live in you and me to reproduce his own life. You're to be a Jesus man, you're to be a Jesus woman. And there's no virtue in it, beloved. All the virtue is his. Someone said outside the tent on Sunday night we were a pack of Calvinists. <laughs> Amen. (laughs) But I think you will be coming to the conclusion, beloved, that we have no ability to do this of ourselves. Bless God. (laughs) Sheer presumption, beloved, for any man to imagine that he can get anywhere near the quality of life that is spoken of in the New Testament. And if you don't want... The Christian life, beloved, don't read what's in this book because God doesn't accommodate anyone in anything less than that which he has revealed in the person of his Son. Glory to his name. There are not two standards. God help us preachers, beloved, if we ever tamper with the word of God and dilute it to accommodate men and women to justify their style of living. I believe within our own circles, beloved, we allow things to slip and slide. And so often our lives are conditioned by, well, it's, it's acceptable these days. It's, um, it's no longer an offence. God doesn't change. Glory to his name. Now, there's not a list of rules in the New Testament to tell us how to behave. But I, praise God. It simply tells us the secret of the life, beloved, that the evidence of which will manifest itself in our behaviour. Praise God. God will enable us to live blameless, harmless, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation. He will cause our, light, our lives to shine as lights in the darkness, holding forth the word of life. Amen. Your life and my life, beloved, to become the exposition of God's word, the proof to men and women that it's true, the evidence that it really works glory to his name let your lifestyle be consistent with Christ Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said you receive me as an angel of God even as Christ sounds almost blasphemous doesn't it but it's there, written in the fourth chapter of the Galatian Epistle the end of the first chapter, he said, they glorified God in me. They didn't glorify Saul, they didn't glorify Paul, they glorified God in him. Writing to the Corinthians, he said, we're here instead of Christ. That's why we're on the earth. That's why he saves us. That's why he baptizes us us in the Holy Ghost and imparts the life of Christ to us. Blessed be his name, to make us, beloved, normal Christians. Let's look at another truth. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, the word mind there means like minded, be like minded. (coughs) Here's again a number of times in this chapter, you, uh, in this epistle, you'll find it up in verse 2. ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. You'll find it again down in chapter 3, verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in, in any other thing ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. You'll find it in the fourth chapter, verse 7 and the peace of God, which part of all understanding shall keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Bless the Lord. We read in the Proverbs below as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. The apostle is not talking about our intellectual faculty, called our brain, up here. That's not, he's not talking about that here. <coughs> he's talking about something down here. As a man thinketh in In his heart, so he is. The mind of Christ, look at it. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a slave, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Glory to his name. (coughs) The acme, beloved, of the life of Jesus was that he humbled himself. (coughs) Amen. Made himself of no reputation. Let this mind be in you. I tell you, beloved, the thing that men and women guard and protect and justify more than anything else is their reputation. What people say about them. What people think about them. How people assess them. how, How they're doing, beloved, on the ladder climbing to success those are the things beloved that govern the majority of men and women's lives and again beloved it's monks the saints I read a lovely story (coughs) a little while ago I was reading the seventh volume of the seven lovely volumes of the biography of Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission it's a marathon but it's worth doing (laughs) praise God seven volumes the sort of re- reading I do when I'm travelling, on long train journeys and plane journeys. And I got to the last volume, and there was a lovely story related to Hudson Taylor in his latter life. He was in America. He was elderly and frail, but those of us who are familiar with his biography know that he was a godly man, and that God began to work in him at a very early age. Let's quote from him this morning. Amen. He was a contemporary of a man called George Muller. Someone once said to George Muller, "You, Mr Muller, you have great faith. He said, no, I haven't. But I've got a faith for God. I think he infected Hudson Taylor. He certainly supported him. In fact, it was George Muller, beloved, who supported nearly all of Hudson Taylor's missionaries. And he was a penniless man. Praise God. He discovered the reality of God's faithfulness. It wasn't a theory that he read uh, in the Bible and talked about, but he discovered it, amen, and worked it out through the context of 10,000 children. If you think that you've got a big family, you read George Muller's autobiography, not this little tiny paperback thing, the great big fat volume, amen. You'll find it in junk shops because people are no longer interested in substantial Christian literature. Glory be to God. Hudson Taylor was in the United States riding on the train with a friend of his, who was accompanying him because he was becoming old and feeble. They'd been on a preaching tour, and certain things had been published. People had their preconceived ideas about Hudson Taylor. They'd read the stories and so on, and they'd got some great dramatic, charismatic giant in their, their, their vision, some great orator. Well, Hudson Taylor wasn't any of those things. He was a very good-looking man when he was young, but by the times he'd suffered the rigours of China. Blah, blah, blah. And you read his biography, and you wonder whether he, how he was still alive at the age that he was. He eventually died in China. And there was a report in a paper which said some terrible, derogatory things about Hudson Taylor. How that they thought he was unattractive, he was non-charismatic, not using it in its modern term, in its broadest term, that he wasn't really articulate and there wasn't much punch to what he'd got to say and so on. It was obviously someone with a very critical spirit who had little understanding of the godliness that was embodied in that man. And his companion wanted to shield the aged missionary from this caustic report. But after some time he felt the constraint of God's spirit to give it to Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor read it. And he folded it up and he gave it back to him and bowed his head and he said, It's all true. God has much to do in me yet. No retaliation, nothing vindictive, nothing bitter or spiteful or resentful came up in his heart. He embraced it, took all the criticism. It's all true. That's the testimony of a man, beloved, upon whom the Spirit of God has wrought and impregnated with the life of Christ. Amen. He made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a slave, was made in the likeness of man and humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Has God begun to do things like that in you? Taken out... Of you that thing that wants to protect, defend, qualify, justify, explain, excuse itself. Glory to his name. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. No reputation. Here's another lovely truth, verse 11. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So often we project this over into the future. Well, there's an element of truth in it, beloved. In that great day, every demon in hell, Satan himself, and every single person will have to acknowledge and capitulate to the fact, beloved, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. But if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, beloved, you, mu- you don't have to wait until that day. Amen. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, a confession is a wonderful thing. It's a very personal thing. Turn over into the first epistle of John. And in the, first cha- uh, in the fourth chapter... Verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Now lots of people use this text but it, as a talisman to work out whether a person is demonically troubled or whether they are not. Well, I tell you, beloved, the devil would. Clap trap trap that verse as easy as anyone else. You've got an example of it, beloved, in the in the Acts of the Apostles, where the seven sons of a priest had learned all the jargon that related to deliverance. Amen. And ended up with the demon chasing them. Turn over in chapter four of one John, and you'll find the meaning of the first two verses. Verse 15, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Praise God. Now that's what our confession is. When we confess, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. No one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. The only person who has a confession, beloved, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ has come into their flesh, is the person who has received the Holy Ghost. This is our confession. That Jesus is the Son of God, and that God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And by the Spirit, beloved, he in us is your confession tonight that Jesus Christ has come into your flesh. not just into your heart, but he's in your flesh. You'll read the same lovely truth in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel when Jesus begins to pray, and he, he prays, Father, thou hast given me power over all flesh. Well, we know that he had power over his own flesh. The point tonight, beloved, is he, has he got power over your flesh? Has he got power over my flesh? Thou hast given me power over all flesh. Hallelujah. Christ is my life. My confession, beloved, is that Christ dwells in my life and manifests and outworks himself even into the realm of our flesh. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our confession. That's our witness. Blessed be his name. Go further down in chapter 2 of the Philippian Epistle, verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own and not the things of Christ. Amen. Timotheus, beloved, was a man who had Christ in him and he was in Christ. And the Apostle Paul's testimony to him was that he naturally cared. Praise God. The word naturally there means sincerely cared, genuinely cared. The word's used in a different way in the New Testament, the same word, beloved, when it relates to kinship, sonship. You'll find it in the first epistle of Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 2, also in Titus, where Paul refers to them as his sons, his own sons. It's exactly the same word. Someone who naturally belongs, someone who naturally cares. And there was this natural disposition in Timothy that cared for people. That was the outworking, the working. Another man referred to in the same chapter was the Epaphroditus. In the last verse it says, because, of the, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not rega- regarding his life to supply your lack of service to me. Here there were two men whose lives, beloved, were the testimony of the reality of Christ it was something that had become natural, sincere, genuine. Because they were kindred to Christ. They didn't try to care. They didn't try to love. Now the implications had tremendous outworkings in the life of Epaphroditus in particular, but they were men who naturally cared. They naturally loved. Now it wasn't their endowment by natural birth but as a result of their new birth this, their nature was the nature of Jesus you and I are made partakers of the divine nature the life of Christ beloved should be utterly natural Amen nothing to do with religion you don't have to dress it up you don't have to try and be pious you don't have to try to love if you're still trying to love beloved, then you haven't understood the love of God Amen Someone once said to me, how do you live this life? How do you live a life full of the Holy Ghost? My answer to that, beloved, is that you live. Full stop. You just live. Christ is my life. You just live. You don't have to try and live the life. You live. How do you love? You just love. That's the thing that confounds me, beloved. Beggars me again and again. Why people can't love one another when they say that they are full of the Holy Ghost. They've got the love of God shed abroad in their heart and they hold each other at arm's length. There's something wrong. In Peter, in Timothy, beloved, God, Paul says it's—he naturally cared with a disposition of his heart. He couldn't help it. He loved like Jesus loved. Amen. Jesus didn't love people conditionally. But Jesus didn't lo- wait until someone loved him. He loved unconditionally, without reservation. He was confronted with ten men suffering from leprosy on one occasion. He knew, beloved, that only one would come back to give glory to God. But that didn't alter his attitude and disposition. He cleansed them all. Now, the one who came come back, I believe, got much more than nine who didn't bother to return to say thank you. But it didn't regulate or affect the behavior and pattern of the life of Jesus. He loved spontaneously, naturally. Glory be to God. Everything that rose up in him, beloved, was love cared why do you think he told stories like the good Samaritan hallelujah has something wonderful happened in you beloved to make you like that you don't think about it there's no virtue in it and we were told this morning beloved it's it's not a question of whether you're going to be rewarded or appreciated or acknowledged You can't help it. All the bitterness, all the spitefulness, all the vindictiveness, love it. It's gone. When I was a young lad, I had a most foul temper. You should talk to my four sisters. they tell you. They were often the victims of it. Nothing would make me lose my temper now. There's no virtue in that. Glory be to God. This is the proof of the reality of the life of Christ. It's not you. It's not me. It's Christ. Christ is my life. And he's wanting to magnify that life in my body. He wants me to live a life that is consistent with his own life down here on the earth, blameless, harmless, a son of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation, shine as a light in the world, be an exposition of the word of God. Hallelujah. He wants me to think as he has a mindset like his was, beloved, that was all focused on giving himself broken, humbled, the confession it's in my flesh and the practicality of it becomes natural it's your nature a Christian beloved, beloved is a person who has Jesus nature that's what makes you a normal man glory to his name Let me go one step further. I'm going to leap. There's so many, so much glory to his name. If that's not enough, listen to what the apostle says in his old age, in prison, with little hope of release, although he Did hope in that direction, he tells us so. But in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In the preceding verses, he said, Verse 13, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching. Reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. He wasn't settling down. I was talking to a group of people this afternoon, and one of their laments, and you don't know who I was talking to, so that's all right. One of their laments was that they'd settled down. That's what lots of us have done, But we settled down. We've accepted, accepted the status quo, and it's way below... Impossible, Beloved was an old man. He wasn't, hadn't got his eye on his retirement pension. There wasn't one to have. Amen. John was talking about retiring this morning, wasn't he? In one of his many illustrations. Amen. He's in the wrong business to retire. His doctor should have known that before he went to him. There's no retirement, Beloved. Praise God. Sounds very attractive sometimes. <laughs> Little cottage in the Lake District. <laughs> bubbling stream <laughs> glory to his name <coughs> no telephone <laughs> I think you people who buy, buy these mobile telephones must be crazy <laughs> <laughs> to be tormented <laughs> Amen perhaps yours doesn't ring as often as ours don't I know it does make some people's lives much easier beloved they're more reachable and perhaps it's an indication of their sacrifice and their laid down lives that they're prepared to be hounded day and night Doctors fall into that category. They were amazed at the hours that they work, time that they give, and what they're prepared to sacrifice. And many of them are not Christians even. Bless God. As an old man, beloved, locked up in a jail, with a death sentence hanging over his head, Paul was still going on. He said, I press on, towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He got his sights set high. Amen. And what was in the centre of his sights, beloved? I trained in naval gunnery. Amen. And what was in the centre of the sight, beloved, was the most important thing. It was that for which you were aiming. Praise God. Right in the centre of the sights, beloved, was Christ. Everything else, beloved, was out of focus. The only thing that was clear before him was Christ, and there was that within him. Glory to his name. He was in him, beloved, he was there. (coughs) Glory to his name, and he was going on and on and on and on. Hallelujah. May God, beloved, clarify to our understanding, get our sights clear, and all the other things away out onto the periphery. And generate within you and me, beloved, that great inward motivation of the Spirit that says, I must go on, on. That was Jesus, beloved. Did Someone mention it the other day, this word in the bi- biography of Jesus. I must, I must, I must, I must. He was saying it at the age of 12. <laughs> Glory be to God. The disposition of Jesus in you, beloved, will always be going on. Jesus was always moving forward, onwards, upward. Blessed be his name. For me, for to me to live is Christ. Nothing else to live for. Sorry if you think I've got a one-string bow. (laughs) But there's nothing else to live for. Nothing else to die for. Nothing else to work for. (coughs) Christ. The Messiah. The Anointed One. By the Spirit, beloved, living in all his fullness within. No one has any advantage over anyone else. The Christ available to you is the same, the Christ available to me. Amen. The way and the degree to which He expresses himself through you and me will differ because of the variation and the variety of the same glorious Christ who lived in heaven with his father who came and lived down here on the earth and poured out his life at Calvary to release all that was essentially him by the Spirit to come and live in you and me, to reproduce that life again and again and again and again, individually and more wonderfully, if it can be more wonderful, corporately. That's Christianity, nothing more, nothing less. That's the essence of everything that we'll ever say to you from this platform. It's all in Christ. Amen. You've got that same Christ, Jesus, the Lord, living in you tonight. Are you married to him? I'm not talking about the spiritual marriage. Now I'm talking about the natural marriage. Read Ephesians chapter 5. If You've married a man, beloved, who believes he's a Christian. That's, what you, that's who you've married. The man is to be even as Christ. To his wife. Have you married him in her? That's the only guarantee, beloved, that any marriage will ever last. There is no other guarantee. Let's pray. When God began to unfold things like this to me, beloved, I was ecstatic with joy. I didn't know whether I was on earth or whether I was in heaven. I had no one to talk to me about the baptism of the Spirit, I didn't know any of the language. I was in a Finance Trustees Committee meeting when the reality of what I've shared with you tonight distilled into my heart and made me another man so that I could confess that I was no longer the man that I was born. Glory be to God. We're to be even as Christ. Precious Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful simplicity that there is in Christ. You're one. There's not even a diversity from which we have to make a choice. You're just one. And you're the same Christ for every one of us, regardless of who we are, what we be, where we live, what we have or what we don't have. You're the same glorious Christ, the one magnificent, normal life that you died to give to every one of us. Regardless of what we've been or done or said, Father, come and Christ each one of us with Christ. By your spirit, place your Son within us. And by your grace, enable us to discover the reality of it. In our relationships, one with another, in our homes, between our wives, or our husbands, our children, in the context of our work, our colleagues. Out there in the world, this wicked and perverse nation, in the company of our enemies, We don't want just a rebel in the glory of the truth, Lord. It's the reality, the outworking. The day today, proof that it's all so wonderfully real. Open your heart up. You know that it's not real. It's not working. Open your heart to the Spirit of God and agree with the truth. The truth will set you free. Some people call it the baptism in the Spirit. Some people call it the exchanged life. Some people call it the new birth. Doesn't matter what you call it, beloved. And have all the language. The only thing that matters is that we know Christ within. Christ is my life. For me to live is Christ. God has spoken to you I suggest that you go back to where you are sleeping or resting and just spend some time in the presence of the Lord forget about the fish and chips forget about everything the only thing that matters for you and me tonight is Christ Amen There are some times when we need to be quiet and on our own so that the Spirit of God can improve.